we continue with our um, with our with our sermon, which is taken today from First Peter, the fourth chapter, verses twelve through nineteen. This is what Peter writes: Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory, his glory, when it is revealed to all of the world. So be happy when you are insulted for being a Christian. For then the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, theft, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's lives. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the religious are barely saved, what happens to godless sinners? So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. And trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. I shared with Carl this morning when I came in to prepare for leading worship, I said to him, I said, I am so glad we are getting to the end of 1 Peter because this theme of suffering is wearing on me. Now, it may not be on you, and you, you could be a much stronger, better Christian than me. But as I have delved into this chapter deeply, week after week, and have begun to understand some of the depth of the suffering that these early Christians went through, I am reminded of how little suffering I have experienced. But we do suffer but our suffering happens to be more from maybe natural catastrophes. My home state of Iowa this past Tuesday experienced a derecho. I'd never heard of that before, but it's kind of like a cousin to the Haboob maybe. Um, it was a big wall of wind and rain and, and uh, 100 mile an hour winds. It was like a hurricane. And it said that it took grain silos and crumpled them like they were aluminum foil. We talked to my brother yesterday, and he lives in Des Moines. They were fortunate to not have lost power, but he said a friend of his in Cedar Rapids still has no power almost a week later. And so we know what suffering is from natural disasters. For crying out loud, we're all suffering from this pandemic, this global health crisis of COVID-19. It's not fun. I mean, it is really horrific. We have lost one of our own members due to this dreaded disease, and I pray that we will not lose any more. 
So we suffer, but again, it's not suffering because we're Christians. And sometimes we suffer maybe because we've created the suffering for ourselves. When we think about that, that's not the kind of suffering that Peter is talking about here. I mean, we could say, well, we've never experienced the heat of a summer like this, and we haven't. This breaks all records. But still, that's not suffering for Christ. What Peter is saying is that when we suffer for one's faith in Jesus Christ, that is different. That is a unique experience. In uh, a previous church that I served before I moved here, one of our youth, a young woman named Rochelle, went to Duke University, graduated from Duke, and then went on to work for a para-ministry organization, a Christian organization, that served pastors of house churches in China. And I remember in her letters, she would talk about how they were bringing these pastors, these Christians from China, where it is illegal to be a Christian, it's illegal to, to be of any faith, and they were bringing them from China to other countries in Asia for a two to three week period where they could have some, you know, instruction, some uh, kind of focused study of the Christian faith. And then they would send them back to China to continue to pastor their churches in these houses. Christianity is booming in China, one of the fastest growing areas of Christian faith is in China. So we know that there is suffering for one's faith in different parts of the world. Today, I, I looked, um, as I prepared for this message, I, I looked at uh, Open Door, which is a website that tells you where Christians are being persecuted. And um, the, China is actually 23rd so they're not the worst. You want to know who number one is? North Korea. Number two, Afghanistan. Number three, Somalia. That's where Christians experience the most persecution in this world. There's other nations in the top 50 that you may be familiar with. India, Iraq, Vietnam, Jordan, Turkey, and Russia. The U.S. doesn't make the cut, thankfully. But what that also tells us is that we really don't have any idea, any concept of what it means to suffer for one's faith. We may know what it means to suffer for different things, but we don't know what it means to suffer for being a Christian. In the first three verses of our scripture today, Peter is trying to make two points about this suffering for the sake of Jesus. A little bit of background. The Christian faith was new to this area of Asia Minor. And Asia Minor was primarily a Roman pagan, pagan meaning that they believed in many gods, and had gods for different purposes and different and, and, and so out of respect in the Roman culture you were supposed to be um, welcoming to other people's gods 
And so you had um, different gods, gods of wine, gods of harvest, um, gods of fertility. You had all these different kinds of gods. And, and so as, as the Romans had these gods, this pantheon, um, Christians came into this region, or they began to develop into that region, and they had <clears throat> one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Messiah, and the God of the Holy Spirit. That was one God, and that was the only God that Christians worshipped. And so um, Christians were becoming known for being a bit disruptive to the society that they were a part of. You might say that it was a bit countercultural even because Christians supported and dignified slaves and women. Slaves and women had no standing in, Roman, in the Roman society. But in the Christian world, they actually did have dignity. They were respected the same as men and the same as freedmen. Women, men, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, all of these barriers were breaking apart in the Christian faith. And they also worshipped one God. And they would not participate in the worship of the Roman gods. And so because of these reasons, the Christians were seen as disruptive and problematic, and therefore they began to suffer. Not so much from the Roman government, although there are some instances of that, but more so from the communities of which they were a part of, the households that they came from. As they began to experience this change, it was a change that families oftentimes fought against because they didn't like how they saw their brothers or sisters, their children, their parents, they didn't like how they saw them becoming a different part of Roman society where everyone gained respect and there was only one God that was worshipped. Christians refused to participate in some of these cults of worship of the state and of the household. I don't know if it's easy to understand that or not, how that can impact a family. And so I was thinking, you know, I, I remember growing up as a child um, in northern Iowa, and the closest professional baseball team was Minnesota Twins, and we got the Twins games on the radio. And so I remember being out in the yard with my dad. He was a big gardener, um, had a beautiful yard, lots of flowers, even a vegetable garden. And he was outside a lot when he wasn't working. And, and we'd be out there working with him, listening to the radio and listening to the twins. And we even would take a trip up to Minneapolis every summer to see a couple of games. It was usually over a weekend, and, and my dad would have tickets for uh, two or three games. And it was always such fun as a family to be twins fans. And then I remember my dad had some back surgery, and, and he had some friends. He had 
been stationed in St. Louis, Missouri. He knew some people there. He got connected with a back surgeon there, and he ended up having back surgery in St. Louis one summer when I was in grade school, early junior high. And when that happened, I remember that he went back and forth to St. Louis several times and developed a friendship with some people there, my, my parents did. Um, his hospital roommate and his sister became close friends. And um, they were avid St. Louis Cardinals fans. So you'll understand the shock of the day when two of my brothers announced to the rest of us that they were now St. Louis Cardinal fans. I mean, it was like a separation that we couldn't even begin to fathom. How could they abandon our family's love for the twins? Maybe those families and those households in that region of Asia Minor, this area of common day Turkey, maybe those households felt kind of the same as some of their family members began to worship Jesus. Peter's first point is this, that Christians who are persecuted because of their faith should not be surprised. In verse 12, Peter writes, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Christianity in its truest form will be disruptive to society. And this runs counter to society's norms which say that suffering should be avoided at all costs. Peter is writing this letter <clears throat> because he is concerned about the welfare of the people who are suffering for the sake of Jesus. When they disagree with their families, when they disagree with their state, with their nation, their empire, they are alone. And so Peter wants, to know, wants them to know that they are never alone, that he and brothers and sisters in Christ are with them and are praying for them, and are caring for them, and are loving them. Peter's letter is pastoral in the sense that it addresses the very presence of sin and evil in this experience, which causes their suffering. And he tells them not to be alarmed, but to expect this kind of suffering. And this is why. This is his point. Don't be surprised at suffering. He says, if Jesus, the perfect one, encountered this kind of suffering, should we expect anything different? His point that he makes here, this very first point, is don't be surprised at suffering. If Jesus, who was without sin, had to suffer like he suffered, should we not expect to do the same? As a matter of fact, this kind of suffering, he says, will make you a companion with Christ. In verse 13, instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Peter is saying that this kind of suffering will make you a fellow companion 
in Christ's suffering. And you'll have the joyful pleasure of seeing God's glory as it is revealed. That is an amazing gift and promise. Peter's second point on suffering is that the Spirit of God rests upon you when you suffer for Christ. Take a look at verse 14. So be happy when you are insulted for being a Christian. For then the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. Now, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open that up to Isaiah 11 with me. And we're going to read verses 1 and 2 because this is where the Spirit of God um, that rests upon Christ that Peter takes this from, and he says that the same Spirit now rests upon you when you suffer for Jesus and for his name. Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. You probably recognize this from our Advent Christmas time. Out of the stump of David's family will, will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. And the earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. That is the spirit that God promised to come upon the Messiah. And Peter says that spirit is also shared with you when you suffer. As a matter of fact, the church was so adamant about this, the early church, is that they incorporated that portion of Scripture into the baptismal covenant. When you are baptized, you are baptized with the promise of that Holy Spirit, the Spirit of counsel and might. You see, the Spirit of God rests upon you. When you follow Jesus, into suffering. When you endure that suffering, you do that because you are enabled, because the Holy Spirit rests upon you. You wouldn't be able to endure suffering on your own, but because the Holy Spirit is with you, you can endure it. And it is only by the Spirit that one finds the resolve to live a life of character and integrity in a society that is hostile to Christians' values. Peter is saying that the same spirit of glory that came to rest upon the Messiah rests upon you too as you faithfully endure suffering for Jesus' sake. But at this point, Peter goes on to make a distinction between suffering for Christ and suffering because of bad behavior. In verse 15, Peter writes, If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, 
stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. Now, sometimes we suffer because we are Christian. But sometimes we suffer because of bad behavior. I can remember, I, I did not really enjoy using the community as, as me a person gets ready to go off to college, I'll just tell you, I did not enjoy using the community bathroom showers, especially on Saturday and Sunday mornings, because there was a fair amount of suffering that had gone on because of some bad behavior the night before. And so when I think about what Peter is writing here, he is saying it's time for us to make a stop and to take an assessment because if we're suffering, first and foremost, are we suffering because of our behavior, because of our choices and our decisions which have not been Christ-like? That's what Peter is asking us, I believe. I mean, it could be, very well be, that there were murders murderers, that there were thieves, that there were criminals amongst these early Christians, and he's recognizing that, that your old way of life, leave that behind you. There may also have been what we would say, um, as it's translated literally, I, I kind of like this word better than the way they describe it in my translation, mischief makers and meddlers. Mischief makers are people who are disruptive, but for their own good, for their own selves. And that's not what it means to be a Christian. Christianity will be disruptive for the name and the sake of Jesus Christ and for his mission. Have you ever known a Christian prying into other people's affairs? Come on, I know you all could name someone, and maybe we could even name ourselves. This is why I think what Peter is doing here is challenging us to assess our own behavior, our own suffering. We suffer because of national, natural disasters, certainly uh, because of health crises, we, but we also suffer sometimes for the sake of Christ, for his for, for bearing his name, but sometimes, maybe oftentimes, we suffer because we created the suffering for ourselves. If it is due to our own behavior, our own mischief-making, then we need to take that into account. We need to repent, and repent meaning we need to turn away from that old behavior. And we need to believe and, and make a plan that things can be different. I don't need to always resort to gossip. We can turn into a new behavior and a new way of living. Living for the name of Jesus and living for the sake of Christians around the world. Sometimes... Christians are disruptive because we feel like we need to be the center of attention. But that's not what Jesus calls for. 
what he calls for is a disruption that focuses on the place that no one wants to go to, the cross. And if we focus on the cross, on Jesus' suffering and his death, then we'll begin to understand what it means to suffer for the name of Christ. When I was growing up, because of my congenital heart defects, I couldn't participate in sports. And when I got to be in junior high and high school, I got called lots of names because of it. I didn't fit in. And I have to tell you, for the first couple of years of experiencing that, I felt ashamed, which was probably what the community of my friends was trying to do, because I was seen, in a sense, as a disruption, in the sense that I didn't fit into what the, the culture of athletics was in our small community. And so as I experienced that shame, I resented it. So Peter is, I think, writing about this in verse 16 when he says, but it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. See, I didn't like the names that they called me in high school. I still don't like the names that they called me in high school. when the early church was developing, to be called a Christian was being called a shameful name. It was to be called something that was derogatory, something that no one wanted to be associated with. Because Christian meant Christ, who was a criminal, who suffered capital punishment on a cross by the Romans. Obviously, he deserved it was the perspective of, of that culture, that society. So why would you ever want to name yourself after someone like that, especially in a society that tries to avoid shame at all costs? And so what Peter is saying is take value in the bad name that they call you, Christian Instead of living in shame, Peter tells them to embrace the name. Faith in Jesus Christ is nothing to be ashamed of. So then he writes in verses 17 and 18, For time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to the godless sinners? So, at this point, one of the things that I recognize is that as Christians, as Christians, we, we don't really think of ourselves as being judged. I mean, didn't Paul write in Romans 8 um, that... As Christians, there, there, therefore there is now no condemnation because we are one in Christ Jesus. Yet 
Paul also writes in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, that all Christians will be judged. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend and every tongue shall confess and give praise to God. Yes, each of us will give personal accounts to God. So, for Christians, judgment is a reality. But judgment here does not mean condemnation. When we think of judgment, we think of, you know, carte blanche, condemnation. Everyone is judged, everyone is condemned. But that's not what Peter is writing. What he is writing about here is judgment in the sense that it is the action of a judge. The judge acquits some and condemns others. Kind of like in Matthew, when Jesus talked about the separation of the sheep from the goats. The judgment of sorting out humanity is part of God's judgment. Some will be saved, some will not. But that's God's decision, and that's the judge's actions. And so the judgment of sorting out humanity begins with God's house. It begins with us. In chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we read earlier this month, or in July, about this house that, that Peter was describing. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifice that sacrifices that please God. Peter seems to be asking those of us who follow Jesus, if we suffer, will we endure to the end? When one suffers, when one is tortured, one can decide to give up. I grew up in the, as a child watching the news about Vietnam War, and I remember um, you know, the stories of the POWs and how some of them were tortured. And I was always amazed at how many of them, most of them, if not all of them, hardly ever gave up their identification with our nation, even though they would be tortured. When one suffers, it might be possible for one to finally say enough, I give up, I recant. But Peter also brings up an interesting question for us. What about those of us who have truly never suffered for being Christians, as Christians have in other parts of the, of the world? What about those of us who have never truly suffered and so easily give up on the name of Jesus. So if you are suffering for Christ, don't be surprised and do not feel ashamed. As he
concludes in verse 19 of this section. If you are suffering in a matter that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. So in the midst of your suffering, Peter says these two last things. Trust your life to Jesus Christ. Place your trust in Jesus. And the second is the promise we cannot forget. Even in the midst of suffering, Jesus will never fail you. Jesus will never fail you. Amen.